friends, it's the Raising Luminaries podcast. This is Asia Ray, season one, episode 11. We're getting experienced now. Um, so right now we're in um, the Winter Parent Activist Incubator, and I'm working on the material for chapter three. So what we're talking about in this third week of our winter work is why we have such a hard time balancing work parenting, activism, and everyday life stuff like getting the dishes done and getting lunch on the table, how that aspiration to have it all gets in our way. And then in the incubator, we're working together to take advantage of our personal experiences so we can raise more resilient leaders. Um, And to do that, we need to cover just understanding the problem with the concept of work-life balance and how this mindset perpetuates systemic oppression. So let's put that here so we can have time to do the, the deeper um, cohort-ish work in the actual incubator. So what I've heard from a lot of our members is um, challenges with getting distracted by the necessities of daily tasks like work and preparing meals and sleeping and getting outside and they feel that that's keeping them from making impactful change for social progress. So, and I get that too, that feeling of we're not doing real validating impactful work towards justice if we're too busy with the the busy work of life. Um, But what I found over the years is that that care work of sustaining life and raising the next generation, being people in the world and existing through the multitude of identities and obstacles um, and experiences that we have are not actually a distraction from radical progress. It is the socially transformative work. Like if you think about how many years labor activists fought for child labor rights, for for, um, labor limits, for lunch breaks, and we just, we inherited these things, right? So when we take, say we work, you know, an hourly job, We take that lunch break and we just see that as normal. That's just a part of the culture. And it's almost, we feel guilty for not working during that lunch break. But we don't realize is that by claiming that lunch break, by taking it, um, by inheriting that work that our ancestors worked so hard for, we're actually perpetuating the normalization that they dedicated their lives for. So this, this chapter this week is really about acknowledging how is the work that we're doing Um, integrated with our values, or maybe it's not integrated with our values and we need to tweak it. But more importantly, how to get out of our own way. So instead of getting stuck in a loop of feeling guilty about not doing enough, we actually, um, like we talked about in previous episodes, we take time to retreat, to reorient, to reevaluate what's going on and what's actually on our plates. Because part of our society is very outward looking And we're all focused on what we should be doing, what we're not doing, while completely ignoring the 24 hours of work and care and survival that we're already doing, which isn't to say that we can't be doing more impactful work or with less friction, Um, but this time is to set aside and just to get a really honest look about are we actually are we actually putting our energy towards the right things or maybe are we putting a little bit of our energy towards just feeling guilty about not doing enough 
<clears throat> so let me see. What is the problem with that concept of work-life balance? And how does it scaffold systems of oppression? Um, so let's talk about today the underlying assumptions behind these concepts of um, these cringeworthy phrases like um, uh, work-life balance and having it all and leaving money on the table, like those cliches that people put in webinars that just, it causes like a little internal cringe and maybe not all of us um, have put some thought into why is that, why is that so gross? Like, why does that make us feel like something is not quite right below the surface? Um, we're going to talk about what this mindset looks like and how we're complicit in it and the harm we do when we perpetuate it, when, when we buy into it, or even when we let it drive our actions so that way our activism and our parenting is guilt and obligation-based rather than focused in a sense of compassion and community care. So let's stop on a wild tangent for a second and talk about, um, there's a Chinese creation story of um, the goddess Nuwa who arrived on the planet. It was created by a guy in an ax um, <clears throat> and she was lonely. So she created people out of clay. And this actually has common roots with the, um, the Yoruba creation story of Obtala, Obatala, I think, um, <clears throat> where on the banks of a river, <clears throat> some, some, um, some fancy being, a god or, or whatever, um, fashions humans out of clay. And there's, <laughs> through the lens of modern stories as they are presented now to particularly children, um, these stories tend to pick up a lot of lenses of erasure on disability, intersex people. You know, they, when you watch cartoons of these things, they're forming fully, fully cisgendered um, men and women and with, with completely abled bodies. And then there's always a tangent about how either the rain or um, the creator got drunk and created disabled bodies and minds, which is so let's throw out that part um, because we don't need to take that part with us and we don't know where that came from, although I suspect it comes from a lot of ableism. Um, and one of the nice things about creation stories is it's a cosmology. It's not, it's not, what is that word? Fundamentalist, right? So ignoring that while also acknowledging it, Nuwa created these clay beings to keep her company and to create a community around herself. Um, <clears throat> and then, you know, things happen to these things. She, she mourns their death. She mourns their loss. Um, she tries to figure out how to have them perpetuate themselves without her constant care. But basically her story kind of comes to a close and it as an ending when there's this rupture in the sky um, where stuff is pouring in. I can't remember if it's water or whatever. And she basically sacrifices her body and her labor and her being to patch that hole in the sky. And part of that is a sacrifice she has to hold for her entire life, or whatever you call it, God's life, has to be sacrificed to protecting the creatures that she created. Um, and she supposedly becomes like a pillar in the sky, holding, holding that flood and protecting the people. And the part of the message from one of the many messages you get from that story is that sense of like, there are people in the world who are holding back the flood so you can survive. And maybe you can't see them and maybe you don't know them, 
but, and maybe you don't appreciate them, but they exist and they're doing that work. If we think about the people who pave our roads and clean our schools and get groceries um, from one place to another so we can obtain them. Um, with supply chain demands, that's really the only time that we notice um, the hard work and the effort of these people who are sustaining us so we can sustain the people that we're caring about and so we can all do a little bit of work towards revolution and justice and common humanity. So when I think about this a lot, about this is one of the main um, female-oriented creation stories within, within the Chinese, um, that Chinese story, <clears throat> and that there's different versions of it, but I'm focusing right now on the ones where she creates the humans and then she becomes basically a static pillar to protect them. And it makes me think a lot about what is care work and how do we define it? What does it mean for our labor to be invisible? And what does it mean to be a pillar, right? Like to be a pillar of your community, to be a pillar that upholds the world that we don't, we kind of pass by and we don't notice it until it's broken or crumbling. So back from that tangent, um, let's talk about the underlying assumptions behind that concept of having it all and work-life balance. So first, let's talk about colonialism. Um, and part of colonist culture is that concept of linear time. It doesn't, um, it marches forward at a steady pace from the beginning to the end. And there is this concept of um, being backwards and being tr traditional or being pre-civilized and then the inevitable westward expansion and capitalism and obtaining more and doing more and reaching towards the future. That is very, that, that's steeped into a colonial mindset that justice is, and also comes as a function of time. It's a concrete act where there's a beginning and an end and it, and it only lasts so long and it's constrained to singular moments as opposed to a more expansive sense of justice where justice is doing the work to make sure, you know, we honor the, the previous generations before us and the generations to come, stewarding the earth, um, stewarding our resources responsibly and with reciprocal care. So another underlying assumption beyond linear time and justice as small events that happen outside the norm is keeping in mind with that concept rooted in capitalism and elitism, that justice and results are visible and quantifiably, quantifiable. You can measure them, you can sense them with, with one of your, I don't know, what is it, six senses. <clears throat> They're highly visible and results-oriented activism work is considered supposedly morally, more, morally better or <laughs> more active more, more towards justice than the quieter and visible work. And the work of scaffolding that work, preparing for it, sustaining the people who do that work and um, provide the materials to make sure that that, that, that work can be done uh, is not active justice work, right? Like that concept that to be an activist, you have to actively and directly have your name on a piece of legislation. So that, that, both of those are, are steeped in the concepts of supremacy, right? That large quantity of measurable results are better 
than the depth or quality of care or how deeply they ripple out in ways that we can't really measure. And invisible labor supposedly is not real valid labor, and which also comes with the, the other just shitty part of that, which is if you do invisible labor and your, your invisible labor is not considered real labor, it does not warrant reciprocity. We live in a capitalist society that is so bent on transactionalism where we just can't survive without transactions, um, that if you're doing work that is not valuable and you're doing work that is invisible and you're doing work that does not deserve to be reciprocated, where does that leave the people who have to do the invisible work that keeps us all sustaining and surviving? So let's talk about supremacy, that concept of people with some identities owe their invisible labor, owe their visible labor to other people. And that is just the natural, the natural way of things. And I'm thinking about um, this impulse that we have because we grew up with it, particularly if we are assigned female at birth or we identify as, as mothers um, or more feminine, that inner and outer drive to keep a clean house, to make sure our children are presentable and behaved. And even if we know logically that our kids misbehaving, our house being a mess, us not sending Christmas cards is not an actual reflection of us as human beings or our worth. It's a constant sense of fear of being disqualified and ostracized if we don't do those things. So we owe that, that drive of we owe that labor to the faceless masses, whereas some people do not experience that, right? There are some people, usually people who are assigned male at birth, who are not raised to believe that it is their responsibility to make sure that, you know, um, someone sends in gifts for the teachers on the holidays or that the stove burners are clean. And obviously not all men, whatever, but you understand the point of like, there's a, there's a cultural embedding starting when we're really young that says some of us owe our labor to others. And some of us are entitled to having that labor, not just done for us, but also entitled to not having our attention drawn to it. Um, where it's almost seen as we are going above and beyond by thanking and noticing people for the labor that they do to keep us alive. So let's talk about those, that American hero journey, the fairy tale classics, where there's um, that highly individualistic journey where um, someone starts out with a problem and then over the course of this story, they end up having it all, right? Not only do they get the goals that they were working towards, but everything kind of wraps itself up nicely in the end. And that's deeply tied in with the American dream that if you strive, um, you will achieve and arrive at a space of happily ever after, that perpetual comfort, um, a place of frequent joy um, where you have satisfaction in your goals and, and pleasure, you know, throughout the rest of the, once you have arrived, right? Which we all know when we actually think about it, like happiness is not a constant state. That is not something you arrive at. The only thing you arrive at is eventually dying. <laughs> so, um, and what this story really distracts us from is that premise that individual happiness is the goal and the destination. Um, and this is something that I even struggle with when interacting with um, some of my loved ones who are raised in that, in that culture of happiness as the ultimate goal. 
um, individual happiness, right? As opposed to say collective safety or collective justice. Where happily ever after is a before and after state and it's just out of reach. If you hustle hard, if you spend wisely, if you tune into the right recipe, if you like read enough books on Buddhism and, and meditate enough, and this is very much, you know, the cultural appropriation of, um, of non-white religions to, as a, to be appropriated and used as a tool to achieve that American dream of happily ever after. So, and then we talk about the eraser of privilege, more assumptions that work and life and caregiving and social justice work are separate objectives that require us to kind of code switch between different parts of our identities and, and require those of us who are multiply targeted to fit multiple roles and responsibilities in one time space reality. Like um, how many of us have to be a mother in one space and a worker in another space and a caregiver for our elders in another space and a good listening, empathetic friend in another space. And it's, there's not many opportunities for those to spill over, particularly when you're talking about parenting and work. Um, it's highly stigmatized to carry your motherhood identity or your fatherhood identity into your workspace um, as if you're supposed to leave that at the door. And we even talk about that in terms of like our educators. Someone said like, I wish that an educator who had a traumatic reaction to the Rittenhouse verdict left his left his trauma behind, right? And left that part of his identity as a black man behind so he could be more professional at work. And I'm just like, no, like if we want um, all of the benefits and insights and tap into the experience and compassion of a, a black principal, he has to bring that, he has to bring his whole self to his work. And that includes his trauma because to not, to be, a person of color, particularly to be black in America, comes with a huge portion of trauma and racial trauma. And to leave that behind is to leave behind a huge identity shaping set of experiences and reactions. So where are we leaving space for us to be more porous and more overlapping and show up as our full selves, regardless of where we are and what roles that we're showing up in and more importantly, where are we leaving that space for the other people that we're working with and raising families with and in class and in community with? So erasing the privilege of not having to deal with that, because that's what privilege is, right? It's not having to deal with those obstacles, not having to think about those obstacles, not having to consider those obstacles in your daily life. And where are we leaving space for people without those privileges to bring that stuff with them without us discounting and disqualifying them because of those. <clears throat> and then finally, the last underlying assumption, which is like this use of misdirection where happiness is achieved by balancing these objectives, work, life, caregiving, social justice work, taking care of our own health needs, um, where the concept like these are separate things that must be balanced and it is up to the individual to balance them, which suggests that work-life balance concept suggests that they are even something that should be separate on separate plates of a scale almost and that they are even possible to balance when separated and it really directs our attention towards the personal failure of a person who is failing to balance these things instead of the entrenched systems designed to support oppressors at the expense of the targeted 
targeted um, to keep these people busy trying to balance these things that are completely unbalanceable and never will be balanceable. So they don't notice and they can't expend their energy dismantling the system that is forcing them to do something that's impossible in the first place. So with these underlying assumptions, we're asking who is erased and silenced and disempowered by these assumptions. So let's talk about what this mindset looks like, having it all, right? Um, there's three main categories. One of, one of them is toxic coaching, kind of like a, a cousin to toxic positivity. Uh, second one is acquisition as a improvement. Um, and the third one is the moral obligation to engage in a cash economy. So toxic coaching looks like someone telling you, you know, Beyonce has the same 24 hours in her day. It's like, no, no, she does not. Beyonce is fantastic. However, what we're doing when we say that is we're conflating the individual Beyonce Knowles as a human woman who has vulnerabilities and human needs and probably picks her nose sometimes, just like I do, right? Hopefully, unless she has staff for that. <laughs> we're conflating the individual with the phenomena of Beyonce. The phenomena of Beyonce is not an individual person. It is a constellation of people doing life-sustaining work for the human who becomes a conduit for this entertainment and this heroism, like the American, American dream, right? And some of, these, some of these people doing that life-sustaining work are paid, stylists, nannies, photographers, um, staff, gardeners. Some of these people are unpaid. We think about fan ambassadors who hold up her image and reputation as someone who we follow and listen to. And we think about reporters who indirectly profit off of getting information about Beyonce to other people, right? Uh, Beyonce the phenomena is, is a, what do you call that? A little microclimate, right? It's a, it's a what do you call that when you have animals that eat each other? <laughs> like a food chain. It's like a food chain and a little environment on its own. Beyonce does not have the same 24 hours in her life as a single parent with disabilities who has to work um, at you know retail at an hourly wage. Um, it's, it's a constellation, it's a community. So another version of toxic coaching is the, the, those oversimplifications of sending out broadcasts. I'm thinking about social media, like Instagram and stuff like get out, do more, show up, um, donate until it hurts. These calls to do visible, measurable tasks that we can call activism, as opposed to more intimate works, deeper work, such as learning why people default to an action and what obstacles are keeping them from this desired action. Like it's, it's pretty easy, it's hard, and it's emotionally draining, I'm not saying it isn't, to send out these broadcasts and get frustrated with people for not showing up and doing the work. But it's a lot harder to identify what does that work look like? How do we make it accessible? What are the barriers to getting people to do it? And how can we collectively work together to make sure that the people who want to show up are going to show up? Because when you're saying, when you're making a, I don't know, Pinterest image that says, get up and do the work, that's not for the people who don't give a shit. That's for the people who give a shit and they're, they're not doing the work that they want to do. It's kind of like a shame reaction. So this kind of toxic coaching doesn't 
actually get people motivated. It doesn't eliminate the obstacles or the, um, the lack of privileges that they have. It doesn't give them the tools that they need to work. It's just a shame spiral that kind of, kind of puts the onus on the individual to break through the system on their own. Um, and it perpetuates basically all of those underlying assumptions that we discussed earlier. Okay, now let's talk about acquisition as improvement, where, um, you know, in the business and marketing community, they talk about pain points. Find, find your audience's pain point so you can find out what motivates them because people want to move away from pain. Um, and then once you find their pain point, you can exploit it to sell them things so you can make money. And a lot of that, sometimes this can be used to identify genuine pain and then people can customize their products or services or whatever to actually solve and heal that pain. But most of the time, these are band-aid innovations, right? It's just people want to make a dollar and they can exploit people's pain for it. So you think about like, um, instead of passing legislation for universal childcare and parental leave and elder care leave, Let's sell multitasking calendars and software to help people in the sandwich generation taking care of their, their elders and their kids manage all of these different roles and help them balance them better, right? So what are we, pro- we're profiting off of an unsustainable, inequ- inequitable system and masking the fact that this is not something that needs a Band-Aid this is something that we need to go deeper into and we need to, to do the deeper work. Um, instead of addressing the root problem of we are asking people to take on too much. So anything that says like, buy this to repair the problems in your life, um, which is not buy this to transform the problems in your life, buy this to compensate for your failure to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, for your failure to keep up. Um, anything, anyone that ever says leaving money on the table, it kind of creates a little gag reflex, like as if the decision, supposedly if someone's leaving money on the table, right? They're not taking an opportunity to solicit money or um, create a transaction between you and, I don't know, someone who needs something you want, uh, you have. So, But what you're really doing when you're choosing to leave money on the table or leave resources is that's a decision, right? That's a decision to not act. And usually a decision to not act comes with the discipline to conserve your energy or refusal to perpetuate that constant sense that you need to acquire more and build more and grow more. Um, And it's always focused on cash, right? Because we're ignoring what, what are we gaining when we don't, when we leave money on the table, maybe we're gaining peace of mind. Maybe we're gaining um, less risk because we don't have to be indebted to people. We don't have to like fulfill some sort of obligation. So that concept of leaving money on the table is just like, it's always implied when someone says it like, oh, you're being so foolish and you're being so ridiculous, not taking this opportunity. Um, when really there's, there's so much more behind inaction and there's so much more behind having the discipline to not just pick stuff up because it's there. Because if you're not picking up that cash, maybe you're focusing on maybe putting your effort towards something that isn't focused on gaining capital and gaining cash. (sighs) Okay, 
Now let's talk about that another aspect of what this um, have it all mindset looks like, that moral obligation to engage in a cash economy where unpaid workers, by that I mean usually care workers, volunteers, um, <clears throat> unpaid workers must compensate for lack of visible, visible measurable results. When you think of stay-at-home parents or people who are the recipients of state aid due to disability or whatever, they must, there's almost this, um, this judgment right, that comes because they are perceived as having more what we would call free time, which is not actually free time. It's labor and time that they're not exchanging for cash. They're using it for something else, such as caring for children or um, healing from trauma or managing a disability. Um, and the assumption behind that is that these people who are not working for money to make up for the moral failing of not acquiring more money must do extra work. They must do more visual, visible, measurable activism. Like when we think of asking a parent who stays home full-time with their kids to volunteer at school and not asking the parents who work, making that assumption that the people who stay home um, with their kids to do that care work, um, as opposed to the people who do some other um, financially compensated work have supposedly more free time, more emotional energy, more rest to do volunteer work and other other unpaid activism work. And that's just not true because <laughs> choosing whether or not to stay home or having the ability to choose whether or not to stay home is very individualistic, and it doesn't it doesn't account for things like disability, for um, the different levels of needs that our children have, that kind of thing. Okay, so now let's talk about within that moral obligation where um, we feel obligated to have some sort of cash transaction to make our, our lives actually count for something. Um, this actually puts career activists who support themselves financially while doing um, progressive work that they want to do, like movement work, it puts them under kind of a microscope and the impression that if they're not living just under a living wage, right? Like if they're not struggling a little bit to support themselves financially while they're doing this work, then they're sellouts, right? Or they're exploiting people. So the people who are um, working in what I would consider less desirably, less desirable industries that are, I perceive as harming humanity and the planet, um, they're fine. They can make however much money they want and they can live in any level of luxury and it's not a moral failing. However, if you're an activist and you're working for uh, a food bank, the expectation is that you should be stretched thin emotionally, mentally, time-wise, and financially. Otherwise, um, otherwise there, there's a, a moral failing in that. So when we're talking about the problem of work-life balance and how it's holding up oppression, let's also talk about the, how we are complicit ourselves and the harm that we do when we um, strive towards or push that narrative of having it all or imply that um, we are or even could balance these things that are imbalanceable in the current system that we live in where there is no support, right? Um, when we devalue and compensate for our lack of visible work, and I don't just, obviously, if we're judging other people, 
and devaluing other people's lack of visible work or lack of um, cash-based transactional work, then we're just assholes. I think we all we can all agree on this, that people who judge others for that are assholes. So we don't need to address that. So let's talk about devaluating. <laughs> That's not a word. Devaluing our own um, invisible work. Devaluating, devaluing I'm, it's a word now, whatever. Devaluing our own work when it doesn't come with financial gain. Um, the ways that it hurts ourselves, which is reinforces double standards and normalizes the disproportionate output, output expected um, from people with targeted identities that we share and people who have power over us. And that's kind of a fancy way of saying modeling for others who are just like us that yes, this is what someone with my disabilities has to maintain in order to earn a place in the world. And this is how much you can expect that I will do for you in exchange for being treated like a human, which is a form of transactionalism and it's silent and it's pervasive and it's harmful to everybody. And then eventually, of course, we can't, we can't keep going at that. It's unsustainable. So we kind of deflate, we lose motivation, we get stuck in paralysis in this loop of feeling guilty when the initiatives that we tried don't provide immediate, visible, scientifically proven results, right? We're like, oh, I am ineffective. Why bother? Um, when we direct our energies toward feeling guilt over not doing enough, um, we, ha- we internalize this message that that's us choosing to feel guilty as opposed to like this was embedded in us in our programming as little kids and choosing to feel guilty is not a choice, right? Um, but yet we're still beating ourselves up for putting all of our energy into feeling guilty. Um, and it, what it does is that kind of distracts us, that, that guilt over feeling guilty distracts us from recognizing the wider patterns that sap the energy from people like us facing similar obstacles. Um, the concept of Tonglen, where you meditate on your pain and use it to connect and feel compassion for other people who might be feeling the same pain as you, um, that's one of the first steps in inclusive collaborative activism and action because you start to see the patterns of like wait this isn't just a personal failing of mine this is a harm that everyone is a hurt that everyone is feeling and let me meditate on this let me let go of my judgment about not doing enough about feeling you know whatever feelings people tell me I'm not supposed to be feeling and then once we can get past that, we can actually take action for collective work to transform it and build a better system that doesn't leave people open to harm. So, and then of course we have burnout when we're complicit in devaluating, devaluating our, there's that word again, um, deval, devaluing our, our own work. Of course we're going to burn out. Um, of course we're going to stretch to do more visible, measurable work that maybe isn't inside our skill set and way outside of our ability. And then, of course, we're going to burn out because that's not regenerative work. That's exhausting work. And I'm not saying that we can't, we shouldn't all take on a little bit of exhausting work. We should never be just staying in our comfort zone all the time. 
Um, but if, if marching in the streets is the only kind of activism that matters, that's going to leave out a lot of people who can't get to those streets. Um, so not naming and reconciling the invisible work that we do, not actually taking it account for being like, what does my day actually look like? How much emotional labor is this draining from me as an individual who is drained by different things than other people? Um, how am I mentally, emotionally, creatively outputting labor? And how am I not getting um, the rest I need? Like even creative exhaustion, right? Okay, so when we devalue and try and overcompensate for a lack of visible work, we also hurt the people we love. You know, we turn into that shitty martyr role model. Um, we develop those dysfunctional relationships where our kids grow up either identifying with us and feeling the need to hustle. We talked about this in the last one. Or they grow up thinking that people who are, identify closer to us um, owe them that, that labor. Um, it creates a pressure to keep up with our unrealistic expectations. Um, maybe our kids are neurodivergent. Maybe they have invisible disabilities. Maybe they have trauma. Um, or maybe they just don't work the way that the social media horde and the people around us want to see the work done. So what pressures are we putting on our kids to make their activism look like the activism that we aspire to or the activism that our community is, is pointing out is more valuable than others? And then we're talking about perpetuating the attention economy. So when we click, when we share, when we perpetuate these, even like if you're on TikTok and you pause for a moment to look at videos, that's all data that gets sent back to, to the corporation, which perpetuates more of that same post, right? So when we direct our attention to the more bombastic, discrete time, visible, measurable, um, emotionally reactive activism work, what we're doing is we're telling our community that this is what we value and appreciate. And we value and appreciate the people who do these things, right? And maybe we do value and appreciate the people who make pies and um, bring pillows to people on the front lines, but we're not necessarily sharing that because it's not glamorous and happens every day, all day long. So it's just, it doesn't occur to us to be cheering on the Uber drivers of the world. So what is the harm done to those people that we're trying to help? If we're trying to take on a uh, less self-advocacy and more accomplice role, um, devaluating de <laughs> our own work as accomplices, um, when that accomplice work is less visible, when it's unglamorous, when it's making the photocopies and um, doing the accounting for, <laughs> right? Um, this isolates the people that we see as aspirational heroes, right? Um, places the, the kind of advocates, particularly self-advocates who do direct frontline action on these shaky pedestals. And it leaves them vulnerable and exposed to attack because humans, humans, human society works by taking people off of pedestals. We put people on pedestals and we rip them back down. And there's like a, there is some need for that because we don't, we don't want to have, um, dictators, right? We, we can't have people, um, being held up as superhuman, but at the same time, these are real people who are imperfect and basically, as soon as you're put up on a pedestal, you're guaranteed to be ripped down. Betty White not, notwithstanding. Um, 
So how are we placing people on pedestals without their consent by devaluating, devaluing our own work and valuing their more visible, measurable, um, exciting, Instagram-friendly work um, and kind of setting that community standard that these people are exceptional. We are not exceptional. And only people who are like this person can do real activism work. So anyone like us might as well just stay home, um, which, you know, just foments that inaction of many, um, of many uh, potential accomplices who are too afraid to get started because they might mess it up or because they might not be glamorous or they see those people ripped down from pedestals and attacked and doxxed and threatened. And who wants that? I don't want that. That sucks. <laughs> I was just talking with someone about icebreaker questions and someone asked, what level of fame do you want to be? What's your ideal level of fame? And I cannot think of any level of fame that seems great. I want my work out there. Um, I derive a certain sense of like ego satisfaction from knowing that my work has impacted people and made change. But I am profoundly uncomfortable with people knowing my name and things about me when I don't know things about them. And I know this is a part of the work. I have to be open and vulnerable and share honest stories and be transparent about who I am. But it's, it's very uncomfortable to be out in public and not know who knows a lot of things about me and I don't even know their name. Um, so where are we creating that that level of like aspirational fame and putting people on pedestals and expecting them to be uh, better behaved than us simply because they do a different type of more visible work. Um, now let's, that narrow model of what it looks like to be an ally or an accomplice, which discounts and disqualifies multiply targeted allies with less resources than others. Um, I, I would like to be an accomplice and an ally to people who are targeted in ways that I am not. Um, but if we're going to narrow it down to the only ways that we can be accomplices to these people um, are ways that are visible and, you know, getting arrested and throwing ourselves into fiery burning buildings, that's going to really, that's going to really narrow the pool of people who can be accomplices. Um, and it also means it discounts anyone who has other work to do, raising children, managing a disability, managing their own um, obstacles from systemic injustice. And then we can't form a collective. So when you think about like the, the ways that white supremacy culture has weaponized the model minority myth, um, it separates Asians and um, Black and Latinx folks. And it separates wealthy Asians from... Asians who are not wealthy, right? That, that kind of narrowing of what it means to be a hero and what it means to be an activist and what it means to be an ally and what you need to do to perform those roles, all that does is divide us and make us easier to put in places with less power. Um, this also disqualifies self-advocates for doing, say, wrong or incomplete work or not having enough experience. Like if we talk about how our work, my work as a anti-oppression educator 
doesn't count as much as the work of someone with a PhD in social justice or whatever. Maybe it doesn't. I don't know. Um, but that concept of like, because that person could afford the time and energy and money it took to get a PhD, um, their work has supposedly more impact than mine. Maybe it does. I don't know. But I haven't seen any evidence of this. So who knows? But the idea, and we even bring that outside of academia and outside of what we would call traditional elitism into, you know, looking at someone's Instagram history and like, does this activist have a lot of photos of them speaking at podiums during marches versus this other activist who just doesn't share their stuff on social media or maybe their work involves feeding and caring for the children of the people who are speaking on those podiums. So how are we supposed to keep up and direct more attention to the less visible um, work that has not, impact that is not measurable? Um, Because we can't measure those things in clicks and shares and accolades and awards and medals of freedom and Nobel Peace Prizes. So there's good news and there's bad news. Nua was a powerful goddess, um, but she had limits, right? She had limits on where she can be and when. And if she is currently holding up the sky and blocking, um, I, I don't actually believe this, but follow me on the metaphor. She is currently holding up the sky and saving all of humanity from flooding, which means she doesn't need to be going on marches and creating. She's, con- she's creating society. She's, she's done some work. Um, she's continuing to sustain our invisible safety. Um, So let's look at that as a less glamorous version, but someone has to make the photocopies, someone has to pack the lunches. And the hard truth is you can't do more than you're already doing now. You are literally doing everything you can do right now. And it sucks because I know you wanna do more. And the thing is you should probably actually be doing less, (laughs) right? Supremacy culture only values measurable work and sustaining care work, whatever work you're doing to process your trauma, to to get up in the middle of the day, to make sure that you can get accessible clothing and food and get health care. That sustaining work is impossible to quantify or measure uh, because it's intimate and ordinary by nature. Um, we just don't measure those things. We couldn't. We would We would not survive if we were counting every grain of rice that we feed our children. It's impossible to leave our ego at the door when we work in a community. Uh, We all kind of need that acceptance, that acknowledgement, that sense of like reassurance that we belong. Um, And unfortunately, right now in our culture, that's only coming with culturally approved, measurable, Instagram worthy work. That sucks. The good news is In the incubator, we're talking about how care work is sustaining life and it's not a distraction from progress. It is fundamentally socially transformative work. And then we're using integrative, reconstructive family rituals to disrupt and redirect our need to have it all into social justice-oriented parenting. So I'm not saying stay home. I'm not saying do nothing. Um, I'm saying we can make small tweaks so it's more sustainable and we can resist that hustle of capitalism and colonialism, Um, but it's going to take some uncomfortable work. Sometimes that uncomfortable work means sitting on your ass and taking a nap, Um, not sending out Christmas cards to keep up and make people feel like you're reciprocating whatever Christmas card they're sending you. Um, 
this is good news because acknowledgement of this system and our part in it and finding our part in it is integral to trans transformation and revolution. And it's not an excuse. So we can act, we can integrate activism into our parenting. We just can't treat it like they're two separate roles and then be in two places at the same time with two different school skill sets and expect anything to turn out well. Okay. Well, I will be back hopefully, I think next week with more ramblings. Thank you for your patience on this very long ramble about the problem with having it all and how it basically makes everything shitty. Okay.